Mark chapter 12. We'll start in verse 13. Verse 13. Give you a few seconds more to turn. Mark chapter 12, verse 13, the gospel of Mark. Say amen if you're there. All right. So we're going to jump right into this gospel account this morning and walk with Jesus a little bit. Uh, as we are approaching Mark's gospel, this is the Passion Week that we have finally arrived at uh, in Mark's gospel, uh, uh, chapter 12. And uh, this is the week, the Passion Week is a, is a thing that's been described, uh, uh, really I gets its name really from the Catholic uh, side of things. It's the week that, that leading up to the crucifixion of Jesus, the atonement for our sins. These are his last words before the pain he is going to endure, before the suffering. Uh, and so the things he says right now, um, these are the words that he is saying to sustain his friends for the, the tough thing that's about to happen, right? Until at least the resurrection. He knows that they're going to doubt a little bit. They're going to struggle in exercising their faith. You know, it's easier, I think, to watch Jesus raise somebody from the dead. But if Jesus is dead, they're probably thinking pretty hard to raise yourself if you're not around to pray for yourself. Right? I mean, like, come on, look at common sense. I mean, if they've never seen anything like it before, you surely think once he's dead, how is this going to even happen? So everything that Jesus does now is amplified a whole lot more around his disciples. By the way, it kind of should be that for us as well. All right, when we get close to the resurrection, the words that he's saying, the things that are happening should be things we'd be paying close attention to. So, uh, uh, you know, we know he's back in Jerusalem again. The day-to-day in Jerusalem is just like one big trap after another. If it isn't one section or sect of the religious leaders, it's another. Uh, the Herodians, if you don't know that, King Herod at the time has a bunch of people that follow him. <clears throat> They're very loyal to him, and they've tried to trap him a bit. The religious leaders and elders have tried to trap him at times. Today we're specifically going to just deal with the Pharisees that are going to try to trap him. Next week, we're going to talk about the Sadducees that are wanting to try to trap him. Isn't it funny that everybody just wants Jesus to shut up and go away? I mean, really, everyone wants Jesus to slip up. They want him to make a mistake, right? It's, they're like thirsty for blood, especially his, because let's face it, Jesus is changing things. <clears throat> for good or for bad, which, regardless of what they think, he's changing things. Jesus is making their lives uncomfortable. Praise God, he makes ours from time to time. But he's also, uh, he, he is destroying their popularity. He just is, right? So we pick up our text today, Mark chapter 12, verse 13. And we're just going to read, I think to verse 7, let's, let's just read. Later the leaders sent some Pharisees and supporters of Herod to trap Jesus into saying something for which he could be arrested. Teacher, they said, we know how honest you are. You are impartial. You don't play favorites. You teach the way of God truthfully. Now tell us, is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Should we pay them or shouldn't we? Jesus saw right through their hypocrisy and said, why are you trying to trap me? Show me a Roman coin and I'll tell you. When they handed it to him, he asked, whose picture and title are stamped on it? Caesar's, they replied. Well then. Jesus said, give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar and give to God what belongs to God. His reply completely amazed them. Now, we'll just stop right there. This is about all, because this really, this is about all we, I think we can get into today, mainly because there's a lot here. There's a lot here. I know it probably didn't seem like it. There's more than meets the eye here, okay? I did quite a bit of uh, extensive research on this passage. And I find myself going back uh, uh, and reading this passage over and over and over because I thought it would be a lot more simple. I'm just going to be honest. There's like not a whole lot there to keep it in context because the conversation is about the shift if we read any farther. So to keep it in context with what is happening in this passage, we have to stop here. And in doing so, in doing all this research and really, uh, I wasn't wrestling with anything that it had to say, but... I found that something very interesting, something that kind of baffled me a bit as a, somebody who teaches or somebody who maybe is a leader in the church. Every commentary and every opinion that I was reading on this subject 
or on this statement that, that Jesus, they all centered on the fact of what Jesus said that amazed basically the Pharisees. Literally every, every single commentary was the same. Not a single theologian, pastor, or teacher ever looked at any of the human interaction happening within this text. Not a single pastor or teacher dealt with the simplicities of human depravity that exist within this text. And that was interesting to me. It's all about what he said. None of it leading up there. By the way, it's just, it's the whole thing is weird to me. No one talks to me about the obvious thing in this, in this, in the text. They're so locked into the riddle that's presented before Jesus and what they really can't see, or maybe what we subconsciously refuse to see is our flesh on full display. Especially when we aren't getting what we want or when we don't like someone or what we really want is to expose someone that we disagree with. That's what's happening in this text. To me, this is the primary reason this passage exists. It's the primary reason to expose our human depravity, our human sinfulness. It's a trap straight from the beginning. We're told that right from the beginning. This isn't about, they don't care what he says about the coin. They don't care about this. It's amazing that so many theologians, that's all they talk about. But they don't care. They just ask the question trying to get him to say something. I'm getting ahead of myself. It's all about human depravity. One human being is trying to trap another into saying something they'll regret. Not only spiritually regret, but hoping that they'll physically regret it as well because they're hoping to use this to stir the Roman government into killing him. And there's this flip side as well, right? And how Jesus responds to something like this. This is humanness, okay? Like, I'm not talking about anything spiritual right now. We'll get into some of that here towards the end. But I'm telling you right now, there's a lot of human things happening here. All right? And how Jesus navigates it is something for us to learn. Because I don't know about you, but how many spiritual things do you cross every day at work? But you do cross a whole bunch of human ones. And how you behave to human interaction says a lot about what kind of Christian you are. When I begin to take a closer look at this passage in its entirety, I've reconciled that there are two human attributes or vantage points to see here. And one theological, I call it a sleight of hand thing that's happening here. So let's begin with what should be easier for us to understand. Let's just let's look at this conversation for what it is. All right. Let's just look at it for what it is. Let's start with the Pharisees. The Pharisees are trying to embarrass. They're trying to expose. They're trying to get rid of Jesus. They know that God hates lying. They studied the word their whole life. They know that God hates a liar, and yet they used lies to flatter Jesus in the hope that he will whelp up with some sort of pride and say something wrong. Or maybe they're just hoping he'll get angry at the whole flattery thing and say something rash and say something he'll regret. It's a win-win scenario for them. Anything that's going to hopefully seal his fate. Their motives, well, they're fueled by anger, jealousy, envy, their lust for power, control, all those things. And we can't stray too far away from the fact that these men are human beings with the same blood that runs through our veins. Like that or not, at some point, even in the church, we have a tendency to say everybody's been a Pharisee at some point in their life. You've been either legalistic, judged yourself to be better than someone else, or worse, you've been a lot like these guys right here. In their humanity, we can sometimes see our own. Like that or not, the ugly side of us. It's easy to paint them all the time as the villains. You know, one reason is because we're allowed to know their thoughts. It's kind of an unfair advantage, really. Because let's be truthful, in real time, we would never be so lucky. Jesus exposes their thoughts. He's the one who wrote the book who tells us what their thoughts are. He knows what they're thinking. Only Jesus can reveal some of this stuff. In real time, you know what this looks like? In real time, like you and I experience every day, it looks like pastors and leaders of the church having a problem with someone else who is in the church who teaches or preaches, and because of this, we also miss the intentions of people. That's what it looks like. Think about it. When the people are looking from the outside looking in, they don't have the privilege of knowing what they're 
they're thinking in their brain, right? They're just seeing the interaction between two individuals, one who's preaching and teaching uh, 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 what would be considered almost a new thing, while you have the old, the old guard, right, who's also been preaching and, and saying things, right? They see two teachers talking. That's why these guys say it what they do, right? I think, some, I think this passage reveals some recognizable behavior, though. And if we're not careful at times to pay attention to our emotions or our behavior, we might just find ourselves in the same shoes as these men. Using flattery as manipulation in order to trip people up, maybe. Hoping to make someone uh, mad, uh, maybe to embarrass them because maybe we don't like them or we feel that they're wrong or we just simply disagree with them to disagree with them. I mean, surely you've met people like this, right? At some point. Unfortunately, there are people out there that are just hoping to trip you up and make you lose everything you've been striving for. You know this. It's human. You've already seen this at some point in your life, and if you haven't, it's coming. If you haven't, it's coming. I mean, come on. One of the things I wrote down here in my notes, some of you work with people like this. You go to work, and you're like, man... I don't know how I'm going to make that. If I have to keep talking to this guy, remember I've told you some of the stories in here about my mentor, uh, Merle uh, Adams, who told me all the time that, about this guy who would just give him all kinds of problems when he was an HR guy. And he'd like, Lord, you got to get rid of this guy. He says, I'll get rid of this guy when he no longer bothers you. You know? God was trying to teach him how to act. God was trying to teach him something with this guy. Right? There are just some people that are so irritated by the way you talk or by the way you live your life that they would say and do things that would demean their own character if it meant disposing you to be a fraud. I'm going to say that again. I know we were a little distracted. There are some people that are so irritated by the way you talk, by the way you live your life, that they would say and do things that would demean even their own character if it meant at least exposing you as a fraud. We call that biting your nose off to spite your face, right? They'll use flattery to disguise it all, of course, and say things like, you know, what they said to Jesus. You remember what they said, right? It says, man, we know how honest you are. They said, we, we know you don't play favorites. It's, it's, it's bizarre, right? You say things that are true. That's what they say to him. That's literally... What they said to Jesus. <laughs> We're rolling strong today. Rolling strong. We should just start serving meals and preaching at the same time. We might get more people. It's kind of bizarre because I think the woman and the man came from the same car. Can, hey, that's human behavior too. You could be in the same car and not talk to each other. How, how crazy is that? You can actually live life together and never speak to one another, right? That's a whole other sermon, okay? So they say all these crazy things to Jesus. We, we know how honest you are. We know that you don't play favorites. I mean, it's like saying you're awesome. Everybody knows how great you are, right? We know that you can only say things that are true. That's bizarre that they even say that, right? Can you imagine how hard it was for them to say that out loud? Because in doing so, they're also validating the ministry of Jesus in front of everybody. That is not their plan, by the way. They're hoping that's going to work for them, right? And that was their gamble. They don't have any intention of propping up his ministry. There's no intention here to make him look more glorified or anything like that. They want to destroy him. They want him to destroy himself. They want him to look like the bad guy. They know everybody's watching. They're trying to provoke Jesus to say something stupid or hasty. Like I said, don't lie. You know people like this. People that it seems are your friends up front, but you know that they're poking at you, trying to provoke you from your patience. You know people like this. This is human. This is everyday life. I'm not preaching you something you haven't heard or you don't know, but you can't avoid this. You can't avoid scenes like this. You can't avoid friends like this. You can't avoid people like this. You are going to meet people just like this that will say things that are flattering as all get up, but they are not your friends. They're not your friend. They're not trying to help you. They're trying to expose you. They're trying to get you to say something wrong. And this is only one side of the coin of the conversation. We're only dealing right now with the Pharisees. Let's look at it from Jesus' perspective. What do you do when you encounter something like this? What do you do when you meet people like this, right? Jesus has a few choices here. 
I mean, think about it humanly, right? Let's just look at it from, from the human standpoint right here. He can allow pride to just kind of come in and accept this false flattery. And what will happen after that if he allows that to take place? He can get angry, possibly say something he'll regret. Anybody ever done that, right? He can ignore the whole situation, allow these men just to make him look foolish. He can live in fear of all the above and fail to do anything at all. By the way, most people probably fall under that one. They don't know what to say, so they keep their mouth shut. While sometimes that's wisdom, there is a time to open your mouth and say something. Especially if you're going to be a leader. Because leaders are looked at as people who have to say something or need to say something in that moment. These are his choices. How he responds is important. Mm. And of course, we know how he responds, and the response becomes the focal point of this entire passage for everybody. And when I say everybody, I mean every single commentary you're going to read. They don't care none about what the conversation was. They only care about what he said, which is bizarre. It's like us deciding what we choose to what we like, and we, we, we throw away or discard anything we don't. It's bizarre to me that I, I couldn't find anything that talked about any of this. But I can't help but notice how much we are also faced with these types of situations in everyday life. How do you respond to them? Has anyone ever made you, let's see, for lack of better words, lose your Christianity? Maybe a few drivers on the street you don't even know. Like you think it's your friend that's going to make you lose it, right? Or somebody that's close to you because they have the ability to hurt you. But I don't know, man. I've seen a lot of people lose their cool on the highway. You know, I remember my father-in-law one time coming in and, and or he coming in and he was telling this story and it was a story of repentance and he really felt bad. This guy had cut him off while he was a truck driver and he said, uh, uh, it was, I wouldn't call it necessarily a cuss word, but it was a very colorful word. And in saying that, he was like, as soon as he said, he goes, I'm sorry, Lord, he's probably not that. And uh, it was very, you know, and I just remember laughing at that moment. Like, I know how you feel. Like that part, that time where somebody just drives you to the the edge. You know, like one of the things I struggle with the same way on the road is like my whole big thing is this. I don't want to ever feel like a victim. You know, I, I'm a guy who likes the fight, likes the conf- I don't mind confrontation. I don't mind these things. I can't stand feeling like a victim. When somebody pushes me in the position to feel like a victim, I might lose my Christianity a little bit. I'm just being honest, right? There's people I don't even know that I've somehow given the power or the ability to take that from me. My, my character, right? I mean, there are people out there I've met that are literally going after that too, you know? I, I mean, we're going to find people that we work with. We're going to encounter people who at times are trying to make us look like a hypocrite. It justifies their life. Because they already have opinions about church. Everybody at church is a hypocrite. Of course they are. Everybody's a hypocrite at first. Everybody's trying to live one way and do another. Just because you hide it better on social media than somebody else, just because you whatever, that doesn't mean anything. Most everybody's struggling. Everybody's struggling. Right? And at times we fall for it. We let Pharisee people get the best of us. They get successful. So for years, you know, you, you, some of you know this story, very familiar story and lesson on leadership. I've called it the Taco Bell story. You know this story. For some of you who don't, uh, uh, it's a story about how I lost my cool during a trip to Taco Bell of all places, right? Over some bad service, right? I never raised my voice, uh, but how I conducted myself wasn't in a way that would have made Jesus proud. For those of you who don't know the story, which is a very few of you, but for those of you who don't, it's a real simple story. We were working, a, we were literally doing something godly. We were working to raise money for missions, and I was out with a bunch of teenagers with another adult and uh, with a youth group, and we're raising funds, right? And in the middle of that, it's over for the day. We'd been at this like fishing tournament where we were basically the workers, and they were paying us to be the workers, so we're raising money for missions. We are done with that. We're going to Taco Bell all together. There's like 15 of us. And like as adults, we'll order first, and the reason why we order first is so that we can constantly watch the youth, right? We're constantly watching them. I ordered first, right? And then 14 other people order after me. All right? Everybody gets their food. I'm still standing there. All right? More people come in. They get their food. I'm still standing there 20 minutes later. Right? They're done eating. I'm still standing there. Right? Not said a word. But it's all happening in here, right? 
I mean, y'all, some of y'all know the story. You know how bad it gets, right? And what ends up happening is, though I never raised my voice, if you know me, you know I'm a very assertive individual. You know, kids fear me, you know, things like that. Teenagers fear me. And, and it's just the drill instructor in me or the Marine in me or whatever that is. I remember looking to the manager who's like 21 or 22 with a couple of teenagers working for him. And that's just three people in the whole thing. And I said, listen, come here. And, I, and literally, they were like helping someone at the register. And I remember going, excuse me, just for a second. I need to borrow that person. I said, all three of you, come here right now. And about us, just like I'm talking to you, come here right now. Stand right here. We're going to listen to me. You're the manager, right? You're gonna t- here's my order, my receipt. I ordered 25, 30 minutes ago. You're going to tell them how to get this done. Because you're the manager. And I'm going to show you how to lead these two individuals who are apparently not doing you a good job. And I'm saying all this in front of them, just like this. This is how it is now for you, right? You work for me. Until I release this, then you can go back to work for them. And, and all of this, they make the food, they give it to me, they apologize profusely. I go to sit down. I think I've done a service, right? I feel like I've kind of done a good thing. I didn't yell at all. I didn't complain, you know? And my, and my pastor mentor goes, you think they'd come to your church if you pastored here? I was like, no, of course not. That was ugly. Embarrassed him in front of everybody. He goes, probably ought to think about that one. Meanwhile, the youth are like, and that's why we're scared of you, you know? <laughs> and that's why we're scared, because he did all that with a straight face and a calm voice. Like, that was scary to them. And it was a horrible, horrible moment for me. For somebody who's aspiring to lead in a pastoral position to think I would walk into a town and pastor and then treat somebody like that regardless of my situation. So the irony of that story is God has never let me forget it. And I don't mean just me. I mean, Stephen, my mentor, still teaches it to students today as what not to do. Yeah. Like it, the, uh, some of you remember when we invited like Joni Lucashay here uh, uh, like a year or two ago, and she brought like Justin and all those guys that were playing worship for us. Yeah, Justin remembers because he was one of the youth that were taught that and he was there. Like, he still remembers. They still give me a hard time about that story, too. You know, it's been five or six years, guys. Grow up. Right? I don't get to live that down. It shaped their life, like how they lead. Right? God used it, and he continues to use it to teach people how not to be. Man, I'm going to tell you, if that's not humbling as a leader, I don't know what it is. Right? One thing I do is I thank God for forgiving me because I repented pretty hard after that. And that story has gone on now to teach leaders in all places, all the way to Arizona now. That story is still told. Right? to express what godly leadership should look like and what it shouldn't. It re- always, when I teach that story, I bring up a, a leadership lesson that's very applicable to this moment right here. And it's, what, it's a Gerald Brooks quote. We go up every October to a leadership conference with Gerald Brooks, and this is one of the best quotes that's like, changed my life that applies directly to what Jesus is going through here and what I experienced in the Taco Bell moment. Other people's actions do not dictate my actions. Ever. Other people's actions do not dictate what I do. How people talk to me or how they treat me or how they try to undermine me does not, there's no way my actions will be justified regardless of what they say or what they do. Other people's actions don't dictate what I become. I have that power. And I can't ever, mustn't ever release that power to anyone. Anyone. Only Jesus have I given the ability or the right to control my mouth. Not even me, because if I had my way, that's how the Taco Bell moment happens. When I have my way, my flesh gets the better of me. Only Jesus has the key to my tongue. And I try not to ever release that to any time else, not even back to myself. I have to be accountable for the things that my mouth say under the pressure of someone who's trying to trap me into being anything less than godly. And there are moments in your life, just like the whole Taco Bell experience, like, like I have to warn my dad. My dad is still probably working on that issue. If we get bad service like at Chili's, come on, y'all know how Chili's is here. If anything's going to test your patience, it's Chili's here in town. I, mean, I love the place, but let's just be honest. You're going to wait, so just get it in your heart, right? Be super sweet to everybody you talk to. Get it in your heart, man. Let me be clear, we live in a fallen world with fallen people who don't want to hear how fallen they are. 
You will encounter people who, who either uh, will be downright blatant in their attempt to mock your Christianity, or they're going to appear as the Pharisees do as friends using flattery just in the hopes that you're going to slip up. You will face things like this. There's no doubt about it. My point in bringing all of this up is that I don't want to see you ever have to be the Pharisee. You don't want to be the person that's tripping somebody else up. You don't want to cause your brother to stumble. Jesus has a lot of things to say about that too. Never let your disagreements or your emotional disdain for an individual lead you to say or do things that counter your Christian character. This is not a conversation that's happening without, outside the church. This is one happening on the inside. Let's be mind you. It's religious leaders. Leaders who have faithfully stayed true to the word according to the Old Testament. I know that they're crooked on the inside and they have issues. But this is happening inside. This is church leaders talking to church leaders. This conversation is not even happening in the world. It's happening inside the church. The same goes... If you're in Jesus' shoes, when you're provoked, think before you talk. Lest you fall in a trap of your own. I mean, the, the irony of talking with people, regardless. Like, even if you're talking in evangelism or anything else, man. Uh, this is often where we find times where we think we're slipping up. By the way, anytime we're talking theology, like they're trying to talk theology in this moment. Make no mistake. If your motive is to be right and then be wrong, that conversation is probably going to go south on you. Because, by the way, that's usually their motive as well. It's not in love. It's about being right. Sometimes you can be right and be wrong at the same time, especially the spirit of it. You can speak in such a way, if it's not loving, it doesn't matter if you're right because it's just not going to, it's not going to like sow the right seed. All right? Everything is God's. Everything is God's. All the conversation. That's why the, the irony of me of seeing commentaries that never deal with the humanness of any of this conversation is mind-blowing to me. No, do you think they care about his answer? Do you think they care? You know, the only thing they want from him is to slip up. Do you think they care if he's trying to make a theological point? Do you think this story at all is about him setting up some big theological thing? No. It's about, can we get him to say something he'll regret? Can we get him to say something that'll place him on that cross a little faster? Can we get him to do something or act in a certain way that's against his character so that everybody here can see that he's a phony and a fake? And if you don't think that the world is going to do that to you, you're crazy. Man, as a pastor, it's even worse. You know, I work with a lot of people who they love Jesus, but they struggle at times going to church or believing in how they've been hurt at some time or another. So how I conduct myself at work has to be extremely looked at. And I know it. I know it. They're looking at me to see how I'm going to behave. They're looking. They're waiting for that moment to say, see, you're just like me. I am just like you. The difference is I'm just trying real hard to be like Jesus. That's the only difference. I got no problem saying that I'm like everybody else. I'm not trying to be greater or higher or, or better. I'm just trying to love Jesus, chase Jesus, pursue Jesus. And so should you. So should you. So this is the human thing that's happening in this whole deal. This is the human attributes, the, the stuff that's not talked about. And we're, we're about to get into the theological side, but the neat thing about all this is how much it applies to everything. I was thinking about how much it applies to evangelism even this morning. And I was thinking about like even when we talk to people and we, and, we, and, and we talk, just recognizing that everything, even the conversation, it's all God. There's a reason why if it was just going to be about the theology, would he really need to set it all up just so he could say this one little phrase that he's going to say? He could just get right to it, right? They could make a little bit of nothing. But they made sure that you understand the thought process behind all the communication that's happening. They made you understand that Jesus knew what their thoughts were. They made you understand that the, the, the word hypocrite was thrown in there so it would set up the scene of the whole thing. I mean, there are lots of clues to show you the humanness of all of this. And even in evangelism, there's a ton of humanness going on even in evangelism. The idea, like when we're trying to win somebody over, one of the greatest frustrations I see Christians go through is when they're trying to talk to people about God. I've been trying to tell him. And here's the thing about even that, right? Love people first. There are some people that no matter what words you're going to say are going to come out of their mouth, you are not going to win them to Jesus. Jesus wins people to Jesus. You bear testimony of Jesus. That's what you're supposed to do. 
You know, when Jesus talks about the seed and the sower, do you realize that you don't sow anything unless Jesus give you the seed? Where do you think the seed came from? Right? So what are you supposed to do in the whole evangelism deal? Just sow the seed. Just sow the very thing that God's given you. It's not to be right and prove them wrong. The evangelism is not done that way. Evangelism, the seed is your testimony. And God gave you that. That's not even yours. You plant your testimony in somebody. And you have no responsibility for what happens next. It says God does the growing. Right? Some sow it, right? Some water it, some harvest it. Right? But the growth in how the seed transforms an individual is not up to you. So quit trying to be right. Quit trying to think you're going to win them by just your voice. Do what God's called you to do. So do what God called you to do. Water. You know what watering is? Loving people just like they are. Right? And when time to harvest, be there when they're, when they're saying, I'm ready. You didn't do that either. You just get to be there. Right? God grows it. You get to, I mean, you, the harvest part is you're getting to, God is allowing you to take part in something that he's been doing behind the scenes the entire time. Man, I can't tell you how many people that I've just got to harvest. I never sowed the seed and I, I never watered it. But I got to see the harvest. The irony of ministry today is they try to take credit for a lot of that, but there's no way you can take credit for any of it because it's all God's. And can I tell you something? I'm pretty sure this whole passage is just about that. About how all is God's. All humanity. All, all this conversation is about is how all is God's. Let me explain as we get into the theological side of things. Now, it's like I told you, to me, this is like a theological sleight of hand in what's happening. I call it sleight of hand because that's just what it is. It's not really an answer that they want. How many have had that where you ask Jesus a question and he didn't give you the answer? Right? Try to tell you something else. Right? You already know that in your prayer life. You know that. Jesus just doesn't give you the answer you want. I'm really, I don't think he ever does that. I don't think he gives you what you want all the time. Right? And by the way, the sleight of hand idea is a term used around illusions. There's nothing magical about an illusion. To make an illusion work, you must keep somebody preoccupied with something while your hands are kind of doing something else to make the illusion happen. Right? And it's basically, it's right in front of you, and you just don't see it. And that's what, to me, this passage seems to be, and, and I'm going to explain that. As soon as Jesus says the words, right, there's this immediate desire to believe uh, uh, that God is separating the cultures. If you go look it up, uh, any commentary, anything you're going to read, it's going to tell you that there are a lot of men who believe God was separating the culture in this moment. And I'm not sure uh, that is what the Pharisees believed was happening, but I can tell you uh, there are a lot of theologians that have looked at this from this point. They've directed this to interpret that Jesus said in the idea that our culture is split in two. One being one that is secular, give unto Caesar, give it unto the world, what's the world's, and then give unto God what is God's, and one being spiritual, right? And they, they want to talk like this. By the way, if, if you would say, well, that's not true, but think about how everybody talks. We have Christian radio, then we have what, uh, what's the other radio? secular radio like we talk like this right it's already uh, uh fused in with christian culture this idea where do you think it comes from and, and for me i'm just going to be honest i can't buy into this i can't buy into this secular and spiritual thing that there's a separation between the two first of all it's never smart to try to create doctrine from one scripture alone by the way if you're doing that you're probably going to get your theology messed up if you try to talk to another theologian with just one scripture as your whole background, you will probably be destroyed theologically. Just letting you know. If Jesus wants to create a belief, we often are going to see it multiple times throughout the Bible. We, we won't just have it in one place. We won't just have it here. There's, there's no precedence for the idea that there's somehow a great divide between secular and spiritual. All is God's. All is God's, right? Jesus says, give unto Caesar what is Caesar's, and that's supposed to be some kind of cause for thinking there's a secular whole side of things. I don't even get it, right? 
I mean, if that's so, then why would Paul contradict this in the Romans? If there's only, if give unto the world, what is the world? Then why would Paul say this at all? In Romans 13, 1 through 7, he said, Everyone must submit to governing authorities, for all authority comes from God, and in those positions of authority have been placed there by God. So anyone who rebels against authority is rebelling against what God has instituted, and they will be punished. For the authorities do not strike fear in the people who are doing right, but in fear of those who are doing wrong. Would you like to live without fear? fear of the authorities, do what is right and they will honor you. The authorities are God's servants sent for your good. But if you're doing wrong, of course you should be afraid because they have the power to punish you. They are God's servants sent for the very purpose of punishing who do what is wrong. So, so you must submit to them not only to avoid punishment, but also to clear, uh, keep a clear conscience. Now listen, he goes, pay your taxes too for the same reasons. For the government workers need to be paid. They are serving God in what they do. Give to everyone what you owe them. Pay your taxes and government fees to those who collect them and give respect and honor to those who are in authority. If this is creating a worldly thing, why are we being told that God controls the world? If it's so separate, then how is God still in control of it? Does it make sense? Whoever theologians are thinking like this, I hope they don't have big churches. Jesus did not come to take over the government. They wanted him to. But that's not why he was there, right? By the way, you know why he doesn't have to? Because he already is. All is God's. Jesus didn't come to release you from paying your taxes either. I know. I know. Right? No young ones laugh about that in here because they don't even know yet, but they'll know. You get married, tax. You die, tax. They do anything and they tax you for everything. But... He's not going to rescue from that, right? Rather, if God ordained the government and its workers are paid through its taxes, then Paul says, pay it gladly so that we helped what God has established. All is God's. Psalm 24, 1. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. There is no such thing as secular and spiritual all is God's. Are there people who sing worldly things? Yes, they are God's people. They might be slumbering asleep or lost in their flesh, but all is God's. All is God's. There's no doctrine to be found here. If anything, this is more of what Jesus is good at, which is what? Never answering them in a way they want him to answer. His responses are always baffling. You ever notice that they're always smitten by, like, what the heck did he just say? In studying this this week, uh, like, the only one, I, this is weird, like, the only place I found myself, like, aligning to the same thought, I, I, I read this um, uh, one, like, a commentary by a Catholic priest by the name of Father Jack Mahoney, and his opinion on it is, like, the one I could go, finally, man, this guy's like, all right, like, he sees it. I wish he could make all his other priest friends kind of see this, but, like, this is great. And this is what he said on it. He says, perhaps the point is uh, that we need to look more closely at the conversation between Jesus and his opponents. Uh, you think? I mean, because that's kind of what the whole thing's about. You think anybody cares what he thinks about the coin? You think they care what he thinks about the coin? They're trying to trap him, right? And he says, and realize the fact that, that in fact, he did not answer the question put to him, should we pay tax to the emperor? I don't think Jesus ever answered any question put to him in exactly the same terms as it was posed. Father Mahoney says, he always changed the subject or he introduced his own agenda, moving everyone's attention to a higher level of reflection. Forgive your neighbor seven times. What does Jesus say? No, 70 times seven. Think about that one. The greatest commandment, mm -mm, it's not one. It's actually two. Right? Anytime. Think about this. It's so interesting. Ground for divorce. Uh, uh, one ground for divorce or many. Right? Yeah, while God makes concession, there's actually no grounds for divorce. <laughs> right? Where do I live? He didn't even answer that. What does he say? Come and see. Man, you are driving me crazy. Answer my question. Right? 
So, paying, so we should not expect Jesus to answer the question here about paying tax to Caesar with a simple yes or no. In fact, he evaded answering the question, pointing out, well, if it belongs to Caesar, give it back to Caesar. Then he added his own reflection, give to God whatever belongs to God. I suggest it is a mistake to think that in his reply, Jesus is dividing life into two spheres, the secular and the sacred, as so many people have supposed. His argument does not separate, it accumulates. He is not saying, on the one hand, respect Caesar, and on the other hand, respect God. What he is pointing out is that if you respect Caesar's property, as you should, then all the more ought you ought to respect God's property. I agree. I agree. I think the whole thing is fascinating, like how he talks. Like when, I, when you really go back and reflect about the things Jesus answered, it's never yes or no. How many, how many would just love to hear a yes or no? Right? Your prayer life, like I've been praying for God's will on this, and what's he told you? Right? Usually, you know what I hear as a pastor? Your complete frustration with Jesus never really telling you. Right? Because he's not going to let you not walk by faith. And none of you like it. You all, it's funny how we boast it. Yeah, you got to walk by faith. Uh-huh. How's that working for you? It's hard. Yeah, I, I don't like it a lot. I'm like a whiny baby with the Lord. If you would just tell me, you know how much easier this would be? Uh-huh. And if I would just tell you, I'm not sure you'd actually do it. Can you imagine Joseph? Hey, Joseph, I need you to lead this nation. What do you need me to do? Okay, bro, I need you to make your brother so mad. You're going to get thrown into slavery. And then from slavery, you'll be accused of rape. You're going to live a couple years in that dungeon, but it's going to humble you, and it's going to make your heart right for leadership when it comes time. Uh, Yeah, bro, I'm out. (laughs) Yeah, that's not going to happen. I'm not going to prison. I'm not going to be accused of rape. Have my character slandered. My brothers all of a sudden hate me to the point they want to I'm not doing that. Aren't you glad Jesus doesn't tell you everything? Come on. And you'd miss out on your destiny, Joseph. You'd miss out on your destiny. Because forgiveness is the other thing that you're going to learn. And when you learn it, you're going to preserve Judah, which will someday bring the king. You're going to miss that if you, if you avoid all that. If you avoid the suffering of your life, you will miss the blessings of your life. Jesus never gives us anything simple. He likes it when we chew on things, when we meditate on things. He loves it when we pray on things, when we seek him for guidance. He loves it. I don't think the Pharisees actually thought that he was separating the world into two categories. I don't think they thought that. I think we think that because that applies more to our world than it did theirs. I think they caught a certain word. I mean, in my opinion, one that would have been theological in their eyes. All right. This, to me, this is why I think they would have been amazed at the talk in the translation we read to describe the coin. The word pitcher was used. All right. But the word is, is kind of deeper than that, but it's almost the same, right? Maybe a more accurate translation would be the word image. You can, you can see where I'm just like kind of cutting hairs there a little bit. But if you re-ask the question in that frame of mind and you think like a person who spent their whole life reading the Old Testament and knowing the Word of God, the, all the laws of Moses from Genesis on, right? This is all they studied, right? The question would sound more like this, right? If you render uh, 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 to Caesar what bears his image, then what are you to render to God? The answer would be you render to God what bears his image. Now, what in the world bears God's image? How would an Old Testament scholar see that as he says it? When they hear that word image, I think they would have been triggered. What bears the image of God? We do. So the things that has someone else's image on, they might belong to them, but the things that has God's image on it, well, that obviously belongs to him. And if that is us, then all is God's. All is God's. There is no secular divide. There is no... God made the world. It's his footstool. It is his. God made you, and you are his children, and you are his. Some of his children will receive him, and some of them won't. But they are all his. All is God's. All is God's. So what do we take away from all of this? Bring the worship. First and foremost, it's this. Guys, don't miss the human side of the Bible. Come on, man. I know you want to find something deep. And I know you're looking for the, we, in the Pentecostal old days, we called it the rhema. The rhema, the, 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 the like prophetic word right? This deeper truth, right? I know we're, we're wanting this and we might want to educate ourselves, you know, but here's the thing. Don't miss the human side, right? 
especially since when Jesus uh, looked at his disciples, you know what he, he said? He didn't say, guess what, guys? You're going to be known for your theological exegesis of what I said. He didn't say that. He said, you're going to be known for what? Your love. Humanness. That's a human thing. Your love, right? Love, we learn love from God. It's in us because it comes from God. All is God's. You're going to be known for your love, not for your theological rightness. Your love for one another. Second thing is to live in forgiveness. Don't get so mad or bitter at someone that you become the Pharisee. Don't, don't, don't try to be so right that you're so ready to prove somebody else is wrong, right? Don't use flattery or any other depraved means in which to trip up other children of God. And by the way, lost people are still the children of God. They just don't know it. That's why we have to love them. They know us by our love for one another. It's not just one another here in the church. It's even our love for the lost. We're all the children of God, though some are slumbering asleep. We never know who are the ones that are going to wake up. So you never know if you're talking to the future. You don't know, man. We love everybody. Next, pray for discernment to spot individuals that are looking to trip you up. When somebody cuts you off on the road, when they're late getting your dinner there, mind your emotions. Remember who you represent. Remember who you represent. If you slip up, forgive yourself. And forgive the person who caused you to slip. Lest you become prey to an even worse, worse predicament called bitterness. Bitterness is like a you didn't stab yourself in the back, but you refused to pull out the knife. Maybe you like the knife. I don't know what that is, but like that's what bitterness really is. Like somebody stabbed you in the back. It's not even your fault. And you're so mad because there's no justice being done. First things first, take the knife out. Can't heal until it comes out. Bitterness is saying, I don't want to heal. This is my new identity. I walk around with this knife in my back all the time. That's what bitterness is. That's got to end. Pull the knife out and heal. And then forgive the person who stabbed you. Period. Or else you're going to end up being like the Pharisee. Be like Jesus. Think before you speak. That goes for everybody, especially teenagers. Think before you speak. Don't let the actions of others dictate your actions. Learn from your mistakes. I had my Taco Bell moment. You don't want to be in your Taco Bell moment. You know what? And the best part about the moment is the guy going, is my mentor going, do you see what you did? And call him into the carpet in front of the kids. And then, and then the next part had to happen is me repent in front of the kids. That's not the right way to do it. And then teach how I just did it the wrong way. And you know what happens? The kids, you're, well, for us, the kids saw authenticity in Christianity. That you can be wrong and still be lover of Christ. You can be in leadership and still be wrong and be a lover of Christ. And how you repent says everything about your walk. And you want to teach them one thing what? You want to teach them when you're wrong to say you're wrong and then repent. And then show them what a life of that looks like. And I went and apologized to those guys up there. I'm sorry for the way I acted myself. It's no excuse for what I received. I mean, they had to see that, right? That's Jesus. That's the Jesus part. Be Jesus in these areas, right? Don't be so quick to think you've got it all figured out. Not everything is a theological debate. Quit looking for it all the time. All right? Don't be trapped by whatever somebody's posting on Facebook or whatever, all right? Don't be trapped into that kind of junk. Don't fall into theological debates. It's fruitless. Who's the, who's the one that's dumber, right? Somebody out there looking to, to have some big fight? Are you for going, I'm definitely getting in this one? Keyboard warrior. <clears throat> I mean, come on. Be smart. Not everything's a theological debate. Remember that everything on the earth is God's. All is God's. There's no secular divide. You're not going to win somebody over by proving them wrong. I promise you. If that was the case, right, the church would be full. That's just the truth. But it's not going to happen that way. Love is the only thing that's going to win the lost. How we conduct ourselves while they're sleeping and slumbering and while they don't know, while, while the, the, the ground is still being tilled, while the water is still being poured, how we conduct ourselves will say more about us than how right we are at times. Give respect to the authority that's over you and trust that God knows what he's doing, which is probably the hardest thing we have to do sometimes. Everybody's an armchair quarterback. Don't believe me? Wait till the NFL shows up in college football. He should have thrown it over here. I'm sorry. He was being like ran after by a bunch of 200 to 300 pound young men who were trying to get into the pros. 
All right? It's pretty hard. I'll, I'll never forget sitting at the Rice-UT game, and we're watching Rice get pummeled by UT. And it was like the first game of the year. Uh, uh, me and Jared are sitting there, and the, we're... Praise God I wasn't saying anything mean or ugly. and Because uh, you can be that way when you're watching one side over the other. And at that moment, I'm wearing, I'm, I live around here. I'm not, I've never been really a UT guy. But if you're going to go watch a UT game and live 45 minutes from UT, you're a UT guy for that day. And so like I'm watching UT, and we're watching them just like destroy Rice like they're a high school football team. But the one thing that was neat to see was their quarterback was definitely on Rice was like, an exception to the rule. Like this kid, if he could just have a, a good team, could definitely play on another higher end school and be great. Like, and, and me and Jared are going back and forth, like, man, look at this quarterback. Like, he's pretty good, man. If he could just, if we, he could get him a receiver, that, if he could just not get killed right off the line, like, he'd be great. Like, the, the few moments where he shines and we're saying this back and forth, and sure enough, man, the couple in front of us, that's our grandson. He didn't know where we were coming. We just kind of showed up. So they gave us these like after tickets up here, but the parents are down lower. And, and it was their grandparents. This guy was like, oh, my gosh. I leaned over to Jared. He's like, I am so glad we didn't say something awful. <laughs> you don't know who's listening. <laughs> By the way, you go to the high school football game, you keep your mouth shut. That's somebody's kid out there that lives next to you. I, I, one, of the, uh, one of these other moments, too, let me just share the opposite side of that, is watching... Uh, I, I love uh, Cade Cool. I've watched him grow up. Brenda, his mama, I've actually was able to baptize both Cade and Brenda at the same time uh, uh, as a pastor and have known them the whole time I've lived here. Cade uh, grew up from being a little kid who was kind of bigger than everybody in middle school to a gigantic man-sized guy by the time he's a junior and senior. And we had an uh, unbelievable quarterback that left us, and Cade is forced into this position to have to be something that he hadn't played since middle school. And he's not doing well at it. He's not excelling at it. But he hadn't played quarterback in four years. Well, I'm going to tell you what, a hometown is pretty serious about some football. And poor Brenda Cool, I, all I can think of is, like, every time I see her, I'm going to speak life into her because I'm sick of hearing everybody sitting in the stands talking bad about her kid who's making good grades, who's somehow finishing school out, who's somehow working through the fact that he's got a hurt knee because he's gigantic at a young age. And uh, uh, he's having to play a position to which he's not familiar with. He's having to just be pushed in this position because of the missing of somebody else. And he steps up to leave, he keeps his mouth shut, and he leads. He's a good kid who's doing great things, but man, there are people here that say hurtful things. You think she wants to go to church with any of those people? Oh, you should come to our church, Brenda. Really? After you talk about my kid at a Friday night football game that means nothing? Think about what you say about the people that are around you. Think about how much you can hurt somebody. Like, listen, everybody's got life, man. Everybody's got a life, right? Be respectful. Be respectful. Don't be, the, don't be so quick to, to just blurt out everything, right? Remember, lastly, that you are bearing God's image. If anything, this is a story about it's that. Give, give what belongs to God. What, 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 whatever bears the image of God, give it to God. Well, what bears the image? You do. Cade Cool does. That, that Rice quarterback does. They all bear the image of the Lord. Now, whether they live for him or not, they bear his image. They bear his image. And there's... It's okay... It's okay to bear the image, too. Also know that. It's okay if you talk like and you look like and you sound like your father. Don't have to be ashamed of that. By the way, he's a good example. You should look like, talk like, walk like, and act like your father. Right? We saw what Jesus looks like. Pretty good example. Be Jesus. Be Jesus. Be Jesus at the football games. Be Jesus everywhere. Be Jesus at the rodeo. Be Jesus in town. Be Jesus at H-E-B. Be Jesus at Walmart. That's hard. <laughs> Be Jesus. I know because they like closed down everything under the sun and like got 20 people working and nobody and everything's electronic now. Like I don't, I don't understand. But be Jesus there too. Patient. Be Jesus. Be Jesus. Do not miss the humanity in our walk for just something so theological. You, I get it. You might be right. But be loving. Be loving. Let's, let's worship.